You know, today our topic is still salty people, and we're going to be looking at what it means to deal with salty people in the world as we conclude this series that has been centered on conflict and how we wade into conflict as Christians um, in our own personal lives. And last week we looked at what it's like to wade into conflict when it erupts in the church. And, and now we're tackling that bigger issue of what about um, our Christian influence related to conflict in the world. You know, I, I couldn't help but think um, this past week about how trite sometimes we think conflict in the world is. You've seen, no doubt, the, uh, uh, the funny uh, slogans that says world peas, and there's a picture of a you know, a green pea or something like that. It's almost as if we think that world peace or dealing with world conflict is almost, you know, ridiculous to even consider. But we as Christians are called to a higher standard. I couldn't help but think about the artist Billy Davis who recorded jingles back in the 1960s and 1970s when many of us were growing up. We know many of his jingles. I'm not going to go into them, but perhaps the most famous one that Coca-Cola latched onto is I'd like to teach the world to sing. But wouldn't you like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony? And, and, and wouldn't you like to see peace throughout the world? I noticed when I looked at this particular clip that I wanted to show this morning that nearly 2 million people had viewed it. About 10,000 people had liked it and 494 people turned thumbs down. Now, who's against teaching the world to sing? Really? Who's against peace throughout the land there are some. You know, is peace and harmony a pipe dream or a purposeful pursuit? Is reconciliation a realistic expectation or a useless fascination? What is the ministry? This is our question for the morning. What is the ministry of reconciliation in the world? to which God has called us in Jesus Christ our Lord. What is that reconciliation ministry? You know, reconciliation requires justice, and justice begins with an other's orientation and commitment to reconciliation. In the 12th chapter of Romans, St. Paul challenges would-be Christians with this practical advice, love one another, honor one another, bless one another, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And on and on he goes with this other's orientation that we Christians know we are called to. And then he has that line. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. How can we do that? This morning in this message, I'm going to suggest a few practical ways and maybe some things we can commit ourselves to in, in coming days that we can be a part of. To reconcile is to make consistent. 
to reconcile is to harmonize. To reconcile is to bring all together. And if we reconcile and bring this kind of harmony that the Apostle Paul is talking to us about, we know we make an impact on our world. You know, if people hope to be reconciled to one another, then rightness, or sometimes we say righteousness, must reign. The prophet Amos, in the fifth chapter of Amos, the 24th verse says, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness as a never-failing stream. What a beautiful thought. That righteousness, that what the Apostle Paul is talking about, this other's orientation living that we know pleases God when it flows like a never-failing stream, it makes a difference. You know, we who call ourselves Christians, individually and collectively, must commit ourselves unfailingly, even when it hurts, in the direction of justice and intentional movement toward reconciliation. You know, if Christians are not sold out to work for justice and reconciliation, then where is the hope for our world or for our church that would have lost its soul? We, we don't want our church the Christian church, Lover's Lane United Methodist Church, to lose our soul. And our soul has to be about the reconciliation that we've talked about this morning. You know, this past week, the trial of Derek Chauvin concluded. A lot of pain was stirred again. We've again been reminded that less than a year ago on Memorial Day of 2020, a man who hardly anybody knew except for his family and closest friends named George Floyd was killed on a random street in Minneapolis and the country and the world began to simmer to boiling over related to race relations and force, and the proper place of police and society, and all of these questions and names that I'm not going to call this morning that we all remember, and it hurts. We remember that through a vivid video, the country, the world, we were thrust into a, a conflict that we haven't seen in a while related to race, or at least at this intensity. Cries for justice, a slogan, Black Lives Matter, morphed into riots and lootings and mobs and burning and destroying, and anger and judgments and backlash, and you, you just name it. And the politicizing of all of this by both parties didn't help a bit. What I observed was that sometime in the ensuing months, we lost the ability to talk to one another in civil and meaningful ways. Did you notice that? Lines were drawn, sides were taken, 
Words were sharp, those that were spoken, those that were posted. Groups were formed. And some groups were formed even in the church to discuss race and relations and and, and reconciliation and justice. They were good for some and for others. They were offended by the curriculum or the discussion. You know, I had some one-on-one conversations during that time with a few friends at the church and a few of my friends in East Texas who were expressing frustration at the way conversation was coming out that seemed to be one side or the other and people felt like they were having to be drawn to one side or, or, or another. And, and I listened. In the meantime, I began a, a nightly Facebook live video group where we centered on prayer. We called it Vespers Prayer Friends. More than a year ago, we started. And I listened. I didn't know how that uh, Vespers Prayer Friends was going to go. I didn't realize so many people were so hungry to come online and pray one with another. It helped me as a pastor because I began to identify with needs in the congregation and in other people's lives. Um, literally throughout the country, throughout the world, that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. And we began to pray. I became keenly aware that not everybody in the prayer group was of the same political persuasion or had the same opinions related to events that were happening in the world. But everybody in that prayer group was committed to one thing, and that was to pray for one another no matter what. And it started to make a difference in me. It started changing me. I hope it became meaningful to everyone who was participating, but I can testify to the fact that it started changing me. It it started turning my attention to, you you know, what we can do, you know, what pastors can do at this time. Um, That that might seem quite minute, but who knows what God can do with our efforts, as small as they may seem. So I continued to listen to those who were coming on and offering their prayers. I became increasingly disturbed that the conversation that was going on in the country and and among even church friends. And so what do you do when you come to that point and you're a pastor? You write a cookbook. You know, I guess COVID uh, put some time on our hands, and I had a little time to do a little pickling and canning, something I'd gotten into a couple of years back. But what started stirring in my soul were stories, stories of a kid growing up in the 1960s when things weren't all that harmonious. Do you remember? recalling how we worked through those things such as um, uh, integration and busing and situations that that put the country on edge then too not to mention the political scene in the 60s and the 70s in this country we've been here before and God had seen us through as the cookbook came to be with the dozen stories or so that were intended to cause us to think about our 
divisions, but more importantly, to cause us to think about a new conversation that we can have when we start witnessing and testifying to what we've experienced. When issues don't become so far removed, but become, you know, things that we deal with personally, things we can even pray about, I think things change. And what I began to hope for in this cookbook was that other colleagues who may have been experiencing the same thing in their churches with a distancing and might take on a group and, and talk week to week in a virtual setting about some of these issues from a more testimonial standpoint and from a place of civility and Christian love. Fancy that. And we've just completed some of these groups that have been going on. And um, we've had pickling and canning parties um, where we've brought these groups to a close. And I thank God that God can use something as simple as a cookbook full of stories. And, and yet, through the power of the Holy Spirit, accentuate all with the love of God and the other's orientation that the Apostle Paul talked about and truly changed lives. It's changed my life. Friends, Christians, we Christians cannot be satisfied with partisan approaches to politics that are divisive and disregarding and disrespectful of others whose opinions and persuasions may be different than ours. We have to listen to one another and love one another and stretch to commit to be better in all that we do along the lines of this righteousness that the Apostle Paul heralds. You know, if we are going to address conflict in the larger setting of the world, we simply have to find ways to change the conversation from talking above and beyond one another to talking with and listening to one another as sisters and brothers. Do you believe that? Where does it start? Maybe it starts with us committing in the context of the rest of this year to be involved in a group of some, of some kind that, that will be made up of people who come from different persuasions and, and enter that group with a commitment to the following. Listening respectfully without interrupting. Listen actively and with an ear to understand others' views. Criticize ideas, not individuals. Commit to learning, not debating. Avoid blame, speculation, and inflammatory language and allow everyone the chance to speak.
Sounds simple. That's hard. But I can assure you when it happens, it starts to change who we are. It starts to change others. And it starts to change a spirit. And we know it when we're there. And we know it's righteousness that leads toward reconciliation. You know, in the midst of all of the sadness of last week, at least I was sad. For me, entered a breath of fresh air in the former president, George W. Bush. Wow, did he have a week of being on television. It seemed like everywhere I turned, he was popping up. Did his first live interview in 12 years. I didn't realize that. But I think he pretty well got caught up last week with live interviews because we saw him over again. And and he was sharing uh, some of his painting in a new book that he has out. And, you know, he's getting better as a painter, isn't he? I mean, those paintings were striking to me. I bought the book. And we know that, 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 um, that he had those beautiful paintings of wounded warriors, and we know his passion and commitment to those who, who have um, lost limbs and lost abilities uh, due to war. And we all have admired his commitment there. His interviews this past week about his new book well, was really about reconciliation. And coming from a former president talking to us about reconciliation, I thought was quite refreshing. Again, if we in the church called to loving community by the risen Lord Jesus Christ cannot commit to praying with and for one another, listening to one another, and actively caring for one another, then where's the hope of positive change in the world coming from? You know, uh, President Bush couldn't help but talk about his faith because he is a person of faith. And then one had to believe that coming from this place of faith came his passion for leading us through his artwork and his book. His latest is called Out of Many, One, Portraits of America's Immigrants. And what stories are in that book? They're wonderful stories, but but they're mere reflections of who this country is meant to be. You know, I had the question, I wonder if we had some people committed to maybe studying the president's book and looking at those stories together and and talking about the issues that come about when we talk about immigrants. We know that they're there. Who would be part of such groups? Who would be committed to leading such groups? My hope that is that Being together will move us to ask questions of one another and discuss together while laughing and crying and loving and appreciating and pondering the things that we have in common, so much more we have in common. 
that we find ourselves in new conversation. We find ourselves in a new commitment to righteousness that leads toward reconciliation. To bring reconciliation to the world, we have to break down the walls of hostility. You know, one of my favorite poems is Robert Frost's Mending Wall. Now, I don't see this poem or the story behind it being so much about a physical wall or a border, rather a psychological or a a philosophical separation that we allow to become firm and immovable, a wall. Maybe some of you know the poem and the story. It's a, a story about two New England farmers who go out every spring and they mend their rock fences. You've seen these rock fences, right? Well, the winter does a number on the rock fences, apparently. The, the, the freezing and the thawing, it, it actually cracks the rocks. And so every spring, these farmers would go out. These neighbors, divided by a rock wall, would go and repair the fences. Maybe it's the mischief of the spring in me, muses one, but I'm, a beginning, I'm, a, I'm beginning to wonder why good fences make good neighbors. After all, my apples are not going to come over and eat the pine cones under your pine trees. Do we really need these fences anymore? And Frost has the farmer say, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was willing, walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Something there is that doesn't love a wall and wants it down. I do not know what the walls may be in your life. I know that our fears need to be faced. I know that our differences that we have with others need to be addressed. What hurts need to be forgiven, I ask you. What prejudices need to be surrendered, I ask you. What changes need to be made down in the depths of your life so that the walls that separate us from one another can simply be removed? Friends, I have hope in the church that we in the church can change conversation in our midst and can impact the world with the righteousness that the Apostle Paul calls us to in the spirit of the living Lord, Jesus. And in so doing, bring reconciliation here and perhaps it'll be catching and spread abroad. For something there is that doesn't love a wall 
and wants it down. It's the Holy Spirit that doesn't love a wall and wants it down in us. If we like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, then it has to start somewhere. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about it starting with you. I'll close with our own dream statement that you can see when you exit this building right out there in Watson Hall, high and lifted up for all to see. For years it's been there as our collective dream. Engage the Bible in hundreds of classes and groups. Become a sacred harmony of thousands of God's children. Serve tens of thousands with an all are precious in His sight passion. And love all people into relationship with Jesus. This is our way, Lover's Lane, and friends of dealing with conflict in our world. It has to start with you and me prayerfully committed to teaching the world to sing. Amen.